Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause with me, Clarissa Christensen. And today we're going to talk about something that's very up close and personal to me because anxiety certainly followed me around during my perimenopause and probably had done since I was eight, but not always debilitating. And I think that's going to be very central to my conversation with my guest today. And as we know, anxiety can be one of the unexpected symptoms of menopause and it affects a large proportion of us and can impact the quality of our lives if we don't know how to approach it well. So I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Chloe Carmichael. She is a licensed clinical psychologist. Welcome to the show, Chloe. Thank you so much, Clarissa. It's great to be with you and your listeners. It's great to have you here. You are a really internationally known speaker. You're also a best-selling author of a book with a wonderful title, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. You've been endorsed by Deepak Chopra. You sit on the advisory board of Women's Health magazine, and you are known for your work in many other parts of the psychology world, as well as being published and writing articles and speaking in the media. So wonderful to have, so wonderful to have you here and talking about this topic that is up close and personal, as I said, to many women in perimenopause. Well, thanks, Clarissa, for that warm introduction. I appreciate that. And yeah, it's definitely a pleasure to share, um, you know, about this because a lot of people don't realize that there's a healthy function to anxiety, which is to stimulate preparation behaviors or inner work or other things that we need to do. Um, so I really like the way that you're pairing that together with menopause and perimenopause and trying to um, convert some of that nervous energy around the topic into something constructive. Yeah. And I think too often the minute that word comes up, we suddenly see ourselves as unable to function. Um, I think people have a perception, I'm sure, Chloe, you meet this when you say I'm about anxiety, that it's some kind of you're debilitated, you're medicated, you're paralyzed. And I know that that's not true for me, even in perimenopause when I did notice it more because we have changes in our brain. Um, I wasn't debilitated all of the time. In fact, some of the time, I think my energy worked for me. And that's very much uh, something that is central to the work that you do as well. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, as you said, for a lot of people, anxious energy can almost um, make you anxious. If you have it in your mind that anxiety is, isn't bad or that it means something wrong, and so then it can become a vicious circle that if you feel a little stressed or a little anxious, you're interpreting that as something problematic. And then you become stressed and anxious about that, which makes you feel like there's something even more problematic and round and round we go. Um, but the good news is, again, if people take nothing else away than this one point is to know that there's a healthy function to anxiety, a person with no anxiety wouldn't look both ways before they cross the street. It's just that we need to know how to use it constructively. That's very true. In your book, you talk about high-functioning anxiety, which is a term that I've heard used before. 
what are high-functioning anxiety people? Sure. So in the book, I talk about really high-functioning people and the fact that they may have anxiety. Again, actually, everybody has anxiety. A person without anxiety probably would not be high-functioning. So in psychology terms, a high-functioning person is really, you know, somebody that is generally speaking, able to take care of themselves and at least have some good basic relationships with the people in the community around them. So for example, if you can set an alarm clock and, you know, be to work on time and, you know, you're not repeatedly in jail for being a a physical threat to self or others and, um, you know, you're able to have at least a couple of friends in your life, believe it or not, in psychology terms, you're a high-functioning person. And I just think it's important to um, explain that. I'm glad you asked because a lot of people think that, you know, oh, well, a high-functioning person, that must mean like a world-class chess player, you know, or something like that. And in psychology terms, you know, again, it it actually really doesn't. A a lot more people are high-functioning than they realize. And I do think that's important when we then, you know, think about anxiety. So if somebody's struggling with a certain issue, if they can put that into perspective and say, you know, I'm actually a pretty strong, healthy person, and maybe this anxiety is even just stimulating me to do something, maybe it's a healthy awareness, or even if this anxiety is a little bit overblown, I'm still a strong, healthy person. And I have the skills to learn how to put this into perspective. And I think that should be giving a lot of hope to listeners because I think we sort of are stepping away from a label that's very negative. And that in itself, Chloe, can have a knock-on effect, can't it? Yes. And I'm sure your listeners especially know, you know, because there's a big industry, of course, around menopause and a product for this and a treatment for that. And the same thing is true with anxiety. And so sometimes there's a lot of, you know, big pharma or messaging out there that wants to make us think that even something that's just part of a normal process is some kind of a problem that we need to medicalize, right? So a lot of times we have the skills to not only manage, but grow through uh, what can even sometimes be a normal, healthy process if we just let ourselves see it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think you're right that the the minute that term comes up, people think, oh, I need anti-anxiety medication. I should be taking all these supplements, CBD. And I mean, all of them are not bad in, in themselves. I mean, they have their absolute functions to play. But it is, as you say, pathologizing often what is uh, a normal change. And of course, in menopause, our brains are changing. The impact of progesterone on the hippocampus and the hypothalamus are quite significant, as as is the impact of our emotions, along with the estrogen, which is always the one we talk about, impacting our emotional regulation. But uh, anxiety doesn't have to be bad, even if we have it. And I think you just really summed that up well, that we are high functioning and it's not necessarily bad. Right, exactly. In fact, again, sometimes the absence of anxiety um, 
is is actually a problem in and of itself, right? So the I like to think of anxiety in its healthy form as a little tickle, a little nudge from Mother Nature, and you know, then to kind of dialogue with the anxiety and say, okay, well, what is the preparation behavior, you know, that that I should be taking right now? Is there something that this is stimulating me to do? Mm. That's interesting because that can be stimulating you to uh, take an action, or re- which whether that's you need to rest or you need to make some other behavioral change or think differently. Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned emotionality. So I'll just dive to- right in with that. And we can certainly talk about any symptoms or aspects around menopause that that you want. And I can talk about how to apply this concept to those things. Um, But I would say that, you know, with emotionality, for example, um, just actually in many ways like PMS, sometimes women will say, oh, well, I just get really emotional, you know, with, with these hormone changes that I'm having. And they want to either just you know, breathe them away and and try to put them on the shelf, um, or they react to them impulsively and take those emotions as gospel in the moment, and then they end up, you know, kind of burnt out or exhausted or you know, um, not handling those things the way that they wish that they had. And so, I like to think of a of a healthy middle ground. Um, So that anxiety, that mood swing, that displeasure, it could be stimulating you to reset your boundaries in some way, right? To be noticing that maybe there is, you know, some person in your life that's very aggravating or, you know, some situation that's not going right or, you know, that maybe you have certain feelings about the change that you're going through that you need to process and think about. So we don't want to just breathe them away or pretend that they don't exist or chalk them up purely to just hormones, but we also don't want to just act impulsively on them. So what we might do instead is is journal about them, right? To give ourselves a space to vent and to make a record of what it is that happened, what it is that triggered us and how we're feeling about it. Then give ourselves some time and space to reflect on it, share it with a friend, talk it through with a friend, and then go and with a more balanced, informed, thoughtful perspective, speak to that person, you know, that triggered you and say, hey, I wanted to talk about, you know, the, 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 the pattern of lateness that you've had reporting to work lately. Um, you know, <laughs> let's, let's talk that through. Here's the, you know, whatever it is. But the idea, again, is that we want to notice how we're feeling and not try to get rid of it. Yeah but also not be ruled by it. We want to understand what's the constructive behavior that this feeling is trying to tell me. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that because recently on Instagram, I've been noticing people who aren't psychologists, but who are working with menopausal women saying, well, I can help you get rid of anxiety. And I I get a little... As a mindfulness practitioner and neuroscientist, you can sort of feel the hairs going up on my neck going... That's not the right way to approach that. And I think it's giving women the wrong message. Again, it's saying that this is a bad emotion. And I think it's putting emotions into good, bad buckets, which they're not. But also uh, giving women some sort of hope that 
that could go in. It may not necessarily do that. But as you said, the way we approach it, the way we address it will have a much more profound impact on the way we then react and then feel. You're so right. An approach that says, let's let's just learn how to get rid of anxiety actually hurts us on two fronts because number one, it deprives us of the opportunity to really look at the source of the anxiety (laughs) and address it. Um, And then number two, as you said, it reinforces the idea that there's something wrong or alarming about experiencing anxiety and that it must be must be eradicated, uh, you know, ironically, thereby actually increasing anxiety. So thanks for making that point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I think probably because for like my listeners, many of my listeners and other women going through perimenopause, maybe we've not experienced anxiety in our lives. I think that's probably what makes it frightening. Or we had not been aware, maybe, is a better way to, to put that, isn't it? Yeah, at least not, you know, this type of anxiety, right? Because, you know, certainly this is the first time going through perimenopause or, you know, going through menopause. And so each chapter of life um, is different. Um, in my book, that's one of the things I, I talk about. Um, the reason I call it nervous energy, harness the power of your anxiety is because I do want people to know again that there's something constructive that we can do with it and that it's normal as we climb in life, as we reach new positions, whether it be reaching a new promotion or whether it be reaching a new stage in life. If you are an intelligent, live wire sort of person, you're going to be noticing you know, new features, uncharted waters, you know, new stuff, and you want to thrive in that new area. So you become conscious of, of areas where, you, you know, you don't feel like you have all the answers yet. Mm-hmm. And that's naturally, you know, a little anxiety provoking. I think of anxiety sometimes as, you know, the feeling we get when we have an awareness that we may not have all the tools we need to manage our stressors or our challenges. Oh, it's a little tickle of anxiety. But if you think about it, that's actually what's supposed to be happening. Because if you never reached a place in life where you didn't have all the tools you need to meet every challenge, you'd never be getting out of your comfort zone. You'd never be (laughs) growing. So we really want to just normalize it and then give people tools of how they can grow. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And you're right. You think just that brought to mind like a new job and you think, I'm not sure I've got this job. I'm not sure how to do it. Or the first time somebody handed me my son and said, now you're going to bathe the small baby. And I was just like, are you serious? I can't do this. It it wriggles, it moves. What am I supposed to do? I felt a lot of, a lot of nervous energy, I think it's more because I didn't have those those skills and it was new to me. But obviously, when we know how to do that, we learn to manage or we learn how to do things, we move through it, don't we? Right. And your reaction in those situations was actually healthy, right? I mean, I've hired people before. I'm a business owner. And honestly, if somebody were to walk on to the first day at a, at a job and they were just like, yeah, you know, I'm cool. I'm fine. You know, and they weren't displaying any, you know, kind of sense of feeling a little bit extra on point or a little bit of that extra level of alertness of saying, 
you know, wow, I've, I've got a lot to manage here. I've got to take in a lot of information. I've really got to be on my toes here. If they didn't have that awareness and that drive that comes with it, which again is a gift from mother nature, or as you said, uh, first time that they hand you the baby, if you're just like, oh yeah, whatever, you know, if you were blase, <laughs> um, that, that wouldn't actually be the best thing. No. So uh, those are great examples. Yeah. I mean, how would you then actually describe nervous energy and how can we use that energy to be more productive and fulfilled? Yeah, so I think of it as it's, I, I was a yoga teacher before I was a clinical psychologist. So for many people, nervous energy has a physiological component as well. So for some people, you know, your, your body feels jazzed. Like some people feel like it's jitters and they, you know, sometimes benefit from saying, oh, wait a minute, that's actually just extra energy that my body has right now. That is a gift to help me, you know, manage this situation. Um, now, there's also times when the big meeting is over and we're still just our body is swimming with this extra nervous energy. And in those situations, absolutely, I I teach calm down techniques. You know, the book has those things, whether it be physical calm down techniques or whether it be mental ways to say, okay, I've got this extra energy in my mind, but it's no longer productive to keep spinning my wheels on a meeting that's already happened. So how can I redirect that energy onto other targets, you know, where it's going to be more productive? Um, And there are nine techniques in the book, so every situation is different. But I do kind of break the techniques down into two broad categories. One is leaning in techniques. So if you're in an anxiety situation and the anxiety is actually stimulating you to, you know, do some preparation or, you know, learn some techniques for the situation that you're going to be dealing with, um, Mm -hmm. there are techniques for that. But then there's other times where I call it pivot away techniques for when you're, you're stuck on something that is no longer productive to keep focusing on. And you do need to learn how to pivot away. And and either one is okay. But my experience is that for many people, they have a one-size-fits-all technique. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, I think of a beach. I do deep breath and I think of a, of a forest with a waterfall and ah, da, da, da. and that's great. But it's like not the right thing to do to just mentally hide out in your waterfall when, you know, there's a situation brewing that you actually need to address and then for other people, they they go, 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 and they actually need techniques to learn how to pivot away and 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 go to that mental waterfall. Um, the truth is, I think we're complex people, yeah. and we all probably need both at different yeah, times. Yeah, def- definitely. And I think I love the way you put that, because sometimes we do have to run with the energy, use it. I think especially in menopause, we're sometimes called to make some quite big changes in our life around our health. Maybe we, our diet, exercise, the boundaries we have, they require us to make changes. Sometimes we have to lean into some of those uh, changes, some of those emotions. And sometimes we do have to pivot away from situations and people that, and, and ways of behaving that may no longer serve us. Absolutely. So just to share a technique from the book that could, I think, be applicable 
for what you just described. So suppose that, you know, somebody is in menopause, just suppose, you know, <laughs> with your listeners, I imagine there's About just, 90%. you know, suppose, <laughs> yeah, somebody is, you know, is, is or will be going through menopause and on their to-do list is, you know, go see my doctor and talk about this. So a, a technique from the book is the to-do list with emotions. And then we springboard that into a self-care plan. So suppose that on your list is to go see your doctor. Uh, maybe it's your menopause doctor or, you know, and, and but, but the emotion that comes with that, let's suppose it's apprehension because you don't particularly like that doctor or they said something to you that felt weird or you have so many questions that you just don't, know how you're going to get them all out or whatever. So you notice the emotion. And then instead of just trying to, quote, breathe away the anxiety or whatever, you actually convert that into a self-care plan. You say, okay, well, if my emotion is, you know, apprehension because this doctor is is just really not with it, or I don't really know for sure that he's he or she is is really good, then your self-care plan is, I'm going to make appointments with three other doctors to shop around and make sure I'm really getting the best care, getting the right fit for myself, you know, or if your emotion is, I just feel my mind blank because I'm just so nervous. There's so many questions I have and I'm so worried about so many things. Then your self-care plan is to make a big list of your questions and maybe invite a friend to come with you to help you process, you know, what the doctor is saying. But that's an example as you said, of how when we're going through big changes, especially if there's a medical component, what could that anxiety be stimulating us to do in terms of self-care? Yes, I love that because then we're taking an emotion that feels probably quite hard, but we're turning it into something very um, practical, tangible, and supportive. That That's a fantastic way to to work through that emotion and get a better outcome than just reacting to the emotion. And that's the way mother nature intended it. You know, we have emotions for a reason, whether, you know, you believe it comes from God or comes from evolution or whatever. The point is that there is an adaptive reason that we have these emotions and these capacities. And we just, we need to learn how to make sure we're using them properly. Yeah. And I, and I think that's very true. I mean, one of the things that a lot of women talk about is they have tremendous anxiety in the middle of the night and that can be quite frightening they'll wake up feeling anxious I mean there can be reasons why that happened that are not purely just simple hormones but in situations like that how could women approach it yeah great question so as you said I mean it it could be just you know a purely hormonal shift and there's a big change in the body and the mind notices that and almost just misinterprets the signal of thinking, oh, you know, there's some kind of a physical danger. Whoa, what just happened with my body, right? And so sometimes it's learning to be able to just notice it and go through some thought replacement and, you know, affirmations around my body is going through a normal and healthy change. I'm safe. And 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 this is what's supposed to be happening. And And just going through that and going through some relaxation exercises can be helpful. On the other hand, um, menopause can also signal to a woman that she is going through a, a, a change of stage in life. And that can trigger awareness of all kinds of other parts of her life. You know, it can be 
It can start triggering thoughts about, um, about end of life questions or about reflecting back on her life so far and, and what it's meant. Right. Um, so sometimes if you wake up in the middle of the night with a rush of anxiety, especially if you're a busy person during the day who doesn't always have time to, you know, think about yourself and pay attention to yourself. Or if you're someone who, um, as a lot of high functioning people are, might say, oh, well, I'm very good at just, you know, pushing my emotions aside and getting done. I don't want to be indulgent. I just keep putting one foot in front of the other and doing my work. And then maybe you don't um, have the time to be aware and unpack the emotions that you might be having around things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes then, they can pop up in the middle of the night when you when you're not consciously yeah. guarding against them or consciously making yourself busy with something else. So in those cases, if you're you know wondering you know um, if that might be the case, something you can do is keep a pen and paper by your bed, and when you wake up, just write down you know what are my thoughts right now? What am I thinking about? What am I feeling? Um, put it all down on paper because. When we don't pay attention to anxious thoughts, they stomp louder to be heard. <laughs> yes. And so if we don't pay attention to them, they won't just go away. They'll fester and pop up back again. So yeah. invite yourself to think, you know, what's on my mind? What am I dealing with? When it, when, what, 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 what is it? Write it down and then revisit it in the morning. Have a friend look at it. All that kind of stuff is another way to deal with it. Or like I said, it, it could truly just be um, a, a, a mental reaction to a sudden physiological shift. Of course, it can be that as well. I mean, you could just have a spike of insulin <laughs> in, the, uh -huh. in the body um, and that, uh -huh. of course, could trigger adrenaline and then that will wake you up and you'll feel like you're anxious because you'll start to breathe and the heart will race. But that's not always anxiety per se and we may label that sometimes as anxiety but that's purely just the body going through a physiological right. experience and in those situations for people who have that and i you know describe this in the book as well is i really recommend practicing to to dial it down right so if you if that happens to you, you know, with any frequency and and you've tried journaling, you know there's nothing else. It's just these, you know, physiological shifts that freak you out in the moment. I would advise practicing. So you would almost just sit there and mentally try to drum yourself up into that sort of a feeling and then practice, you know, your yeah. slow down breathing techniques, all that stuff to to practice toggling out of it and into it and out of it. And then I, you're, you're better equipped when it takes you by surprise because it's not like you only ever deal with this in a moment of panic. No, you often have those feelings. They can happen throughout the day and through many different parts of our life. We can feel that sort of rush. But I think probably in perimenopause, we've now been told that we can be highly anxious. So people then are are kind of alerted to something which we may have experienced when we were younger and we kind of just let it pass. You know, that's an interesting point as well. So sometimes the body actually has memories, right? So if you have a, a, a sudden strong feeling of physical anxiety that might even just have been due, as you said, to an insulin spike, but 
it reminds you of some earlier time in your life when you felt very anxious and it kind of reminds your body of it. Um, sometimes we actually have to go back and reprocess things. And again, that can be on a body physiological reminder level. And then there's also that parallel that as we graduate any time in life, we tend to look back and reflect. So even people graduating from college, they look back and they reflect on college and high school and everything else. And when you're graduating into menopause, it's a natural time to look back and have uh, points of reflection on your earlier life. Mm, definitely. So I think those are some really important points for women to, to hold on to. You've mentioned that you have nine anxiety tools in the book, and we talked quite a bit about journaling. Are there any others that you particularly love or would like to share with the listeners? Sure. Um, so one of them that I think can be helpful, perhaps, um, is one called the mental shortlist. So in the mental shortlist, when we have a certain topic on our mind and our mind just feels stuck on it and we know it's a dead end mental topic for us, instead of saying to ourselves, I'm not going to think about that anymore. I'm not going to think <laughs> about it anymore. Um, which only is like the pink elephants problem. I'm not going to think of pink <laughs> elephants. It only makes us think of it. Um, or just trying to, you know, breathe away the energy and calm ourselves down, which can be almost like fighting a rainstorm sometimes. You know, if, if your body has the energy because of this topic or just has energy, it can be helpful to give ourselves five other things to think about instead. So that's the mental shortlist is we would come up with five things that we know are better uses of our mental energy. That could be anything from, you know, catching up on birthday and holiday shopping to professional work projects, even meditation exercises that you've been wanting to try or books that you've been wanting to read or lists of friends and family that you feel like you never have time to call. And then you just cycle through that list. Um, but we do need to have a mental shortlist. Oftentimes it's actually written down because in moments of anxiety, our physical vision as well as our mental vision gets more narrow and the yeah. mental shortlist of great things to think about instead seems very obvious in our calm state of mind, but we can't think about it when we're under, under duress. Um, I would say though, again, that the mental shortlist is one of those pivot away techniques yes. And I would only suggest using it when you know that you're not running away from something that is making you nervous and anxious that really does deserve your direct attention. Only if you know, like, again, suppose that you have that doctor's visit coming up. You've made your list of questions. You have three backup doctors. Like, you've done everything you need to do on this doctor visit front. But the doctor visit isn't three hours and you're just nervous about it. Instead of just sitting there stewing on it, you could go to your mental shortlist and use yeah. that energy there instead. Yeah. That I love that. And I think that's a really strong technique. But as you say, it's a pivot away. The only time I've ever heard that sort of talked about was for women who were in more severe things like self-harm or some other quite severe traumatic psychological space. And sometimes they were given pivot away tools to, you know, help them be somewhere else than at doing something that would be harming themselves. But I, I can definitely see that that could be a very, very powerful 
way if you are, you know, I've been here, I've done my work. That could apply to a doctor's visit, to a project at work or whatever. I've done what I need to do. Okay, I don't need to ruminate on this anymore. I can go over here and do something that's more productive with the energy I have. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. And do you have another one that you might want to to share? Sure, sure. Let me just think here. Well, I shared with you also um, about the to-do list with emotions. Another one, in addition to to-do list with emotions and uh, the mental shortlist, um, another one I think that can be potentially helpful, you know, again, depending on listeners' situation, but one that can be helpful is something called thought replacement. So if you have what psychologists call maladaptive thoughts, right, like some women have a negative view of aging, right? Some women, therefore, um, have negative feelings about themselves, you know, through menopause. And they have negative thoughts about, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm too old or, you know, just I, I, I can't do such and such because I'm so old or I haven't done enough. Look at where I am in life. And, and at my age, you know, this is, this is, you know, pathetic or whatever. Um, and thought replacements are there for when you have a, you know, again, maladaptive thought, maladaptive meaning actually inaccurate and not productive. And so then we want to override that thought, right? So suppose that somebody is 55 and they're having those types of thoughts, right? They might want to override those thoughts with, you know, thoughts like, you know, I I have probably at least 30 good years of life ahead Mm -hmm. of me. And how vivacious I am depends largely on me, Um, you know, or mentally, like their thought replacement could include, you know, um, thinking, naming the names of certain women, whether it be celebrities or women in your actual life and saying, you know, Pam, Cheryl and Susan are amazing women, decades older than I am. Um, How, how, how can I drum up that energy? Right. And sometimes, and again, I would advise people once you get your thought replacement, to actually really write it down. And your thought replacement should be very targeted to whatever your particular negative maladaptive thoughts are. Um, The kind of weird silver lining of maladaptive thoughts is that they tend to be repetitive. It's some kind of a thought that you always have. While that's not a good thing, the beauty of it is, is that you can probably identify it. You know exactly what the sentence or the phrase is. And forewarned is forearmed. That means that you can spend some time, write that thought down, and then um, craft a really good, true counterstatement that you'll say when that, you know, maladaptive thought arises. And you have to really write it down because, again, it can seem so obvious when you're in your calm state of mind with your journal and (laughs) making your thought lists and everything. But then when you're in the moment spinning, it will actually anchor you that all you have to do is point your eyeballs at that at those words and and stick with them. Um, I I would also just say with that one when people might say, oh well, I tried that and it it didn't feel natural. 
I would say that's totally normal. It's not supposed to feel natural. It's a new thought. Just like if you had been slouching for 20 years and then you said, I'm going to learn how to put my shoulders back and sit properly. That wouldn't feel natural either, but it's a, it's a new habit that you're trying to build. One more point about the thought replacements is just that some people say, oh, is that like affirmations? Because they've done affirmations. And so, and I'm, I'm a former yoga teacher, so I have nothing against affirmations. But the problem with affirmations is that they can be aspirational. Yes. Um, so for example, in the examples I gave, somebody might take an affirmation like, I'm, I, I feel beautiful and I am a queen and, you know, the world is my <laughs> oyster, you know, or whatever. And, and that might actually not be totally true. No. And when we take affirmations that are not 100% accurate, it's actually harder for the mind to wrap around them. Yeah. And sometimes it even causes the mind to feel um, a sense of inadequacy. Uh, so it's very important that the thought replacements have to be 100% accurate. Yeah, I like that. And I think that that's a really good description uh, and the difference sometimes between an aspirational affirmation and a thought a thought replacement where we may be really, particularly around things like our body, where we might say that you are fat and we're old and we're, you know, when we're washed up and all the rest. And that isn't always the truth. Or, or as you said, you know, I can't do these things anymore because I'm this age or I'm going through menopause. And then, as you said, you can talk about a friend or someone that you you maybe know or you've seen. I think sometimes celebrities have their own issues there too because they can be very distant from where we are in our in our own lives. But I, I love that you can make a thought replacement that is real enough for you to be able to connect with it and use it to really flip some very negative and critical conversation that can be very harmful, can't it? Yes. And if anyone is struggling to come up with a good thought replacement, that's your clue that you need to talk to a friend, a therapist, whatever. It's still a good thing that you isolated and wrote down exactly what that maladaptive thought is that is getting you stuck so that somebody can help you to get some perspective on it. Yes. And I think it's right. Quite often other people uh, see us very differently from how we see ourselves. So I love that advice. Chloe, there's just so much to discuss about anxiety and nervous energy, but I think you've provided so much hope and inspiration and some great tools and tips and insights uh, to how people can begin the process of of actually becoming, you know, uh, high functioning or being able to harness the power of their anxiety. Where can people get in contact with you and follow your work and buy your book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Clarissa. So anxietyishealthy.com, if they go to anxietyishealthy.com, it will take them to, you know, my website where it's a page about my book. And then there's social media icons everywhere. If they're into, you know, YouTube or Instagram or whatever, I'm on all those things. And then of course my book is available, um, ebook, paper, as well as audio books. So they can go to anxietyishealthy.com and learn that more. That is beautiful. Chloe, we're going to put all of that in the show notes. So Listeners who felt inspired today can go and buy the book, pick up the resources, and start to really not feel 
weighted down by their anxiety, but instead almost like flip the script and harness the power that it can give us. Thank you so much. Exactly. Thank you. Thanks, Clarissa. The pleasure was mine.